Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 25th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Friday's deadline of 11 o'clock has long passed and 18 Ukrainian refugees remain in their home in Drogheda, declining to leave on the bus that came for them to take them to St Mary's in Drumcar. The decision to move the 18 residents to Drumcar followed a decision by Declan and Siobhan Furlong, who lease the house in Drogheda to charge the refugees €140 per adult and €70 per child, despite the government already paying for the cost of their accommodation. There's been a lot of concern about uh, the way the Furlongs uh, demanded money from refugees, telling them to pay up or get out. The lack of uh, basic respect that they showed uh, to uh, the people that they were turfing out because they wanted a receipt for paying money to the furlongs that the furlongs were not entitled to in the first place caused further concern. Let's uh, speak to Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd, who joins us once again. Very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on the programme. Uh, I believe uh, that you've uh, spoken to the Minister with responsibility for integration, Roderick O'Gorman, since we last spoke on the programme on Friday. What has the Minister said about this current situation? over the weekend, Michael, and I got to speak to him yesterday when he returned and he's fully aware of the situation and he undertook yesterday that a further letter would now issue from his department uh, to, to the residents in that home uh, extending the period for, for a week to allow them time to consider all of the options and also to try and arrive at an at, at a acceptable solution to everybody, particularly I'm talking now about the, the Ukrainians and, and the department. One of the issues with all... Sorry, Michael, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one of the issues with all of this is that the department have not negotiated directly with the residents. They've acted through the good offices of, of the Loud County Council, but nevertheless, they are a third party. And what I've been asking is that they would directly engage with the residents uh, to understand and appreciate their needs and their concerns to deal with the obviously the significant issues that have arisen as a result of the abuse that they have suffered. Mm. Uh, so really, that's where it's at. Okay. I also forward mm. to you there, Michael, you mightn't have seen it yet, mm. a letter I got from Loud County Council saying that, that they had uh, that they had told me that there, was, that, the, that there was a problem with a fire certificate with a house in Fair Street. And thus, I was arguing on your show that that house uh, should be available to those families. Now, they've clarified that, and that is not the case. So I understand that to mean that that house is partially or about to be occupied by other parties, and that that doesn't make that an option, apparently, anymore. But I think the key thing now is we have time... uh, 
that we will have time on receipt of this letter, uh, which the Minister said was on its way last night, uh, to, to engage directly with the department, which I think mm. is, is the best way forward but for that everybody. Will be the, that will be the first contact with uh, the department, will it not, since last week? It, 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 it will, Michael, it will. And part of the problem was that the department communication was like the old uh, paper bowls of old, was nailed on the door of their bedrooms, like it was stuck to the door of the bedroom. Mm. Rather than, uh, you know, was, that there was no meeting, there was there was no communication. And even over the weekend, there was a further letter, which you, you may not have seen, um, sort of saying that they had to go, they'd, they'd had to go out by six o'clock on Friday evening. And that was fine if they went, if they didn't go, if they agreed in principle to go to Drumcar, then they could carry their own bags down there and make their own way themselves. <coughs> you know, and that's mm. the sort of way that it was being treated. So I think mm. with the Minister's direct involvement, there, there will be hopefully a, mm. a significant change of, of approach and a, a more understanding of their needs. And let's not forget the reason these people are in this situation, as you always have pointed out, that they've been uh, you know, uh, mm. abused verbally and, and it told together when they wouldn't pay a uh, demand which was not legal. Okay, and I was speaking with Olga on Friday evening uh, and as you say there were uh, officials from Louth County Council uh, who came to visit her and the other residents in the house and uh, Olga was uh, somewhat uh, distraught uh, thinking that if they didn't go to drum car they could find themselves in a situation where there would be no accommodation made available for them. Uh, what did you make of that? I was very concerned about that. I've been deeply concerned about it. I've, 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 I've just. I think what I'm trying to do with the minister is to move this on now and leave all that stuff behind, which mm-hmm. is unacceptable and not, and in my view, absolutely appalling. Um, and to to try and get a solution, um, these people are very vulnerable. When you, they've left the war zone. You know, they're, they're not here because they want to be here. They're here because we've offered them international protection. Protection means protecting them. And if and that they have been abused here, uh, we have to protect them. And that's that's what people want as well. And there was huge uh, support, I believe, on Friday, you know, to, to support them and, and keeping them, if mm. at all possible, in Drogheda. And I think that nothing, you know, I think there's huge lessons for the department here. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think you know, I'd make sure that they're learned back in antiquity as well. Mm, yeah, well, you would like to think that that would be the case, but to the immediate situation, which is this crisis uh, for the eighteen people living on uh, the North Road in Drata, from what you're saying, it doesn't look like there's many options available to rehouse them in the town. It doesn't look like it. More as I speak to you, it doesn't. One of the issues. I'm looking at is to try and get a commitment that the department would, in fact, if and when an appropriate uh, accommodation, and you're talking about accommodation for a significant number of people, uh, becomes available, that it would be given to them. And I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, and if people have, have accommodation, obviously, um, a lot of them, uh, there are offers which have been made to the department already, and I understand they're looking at those again to make sure they, they haven't missed out. But it would be a, a wrong that they wouldn't be kept in town, uh, and I think that's 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 their strong wish, and obviously mm. you know, I'll do my best to ensure that. Okay, um, and, and and can you tell us what the minister thought 
of how the furlongs who lease this house and manage the house for uh, the Ukrainian refugees uh, were looking to charge the refugees on top of what they were already being paid by by the government. Uh, I'm sure the minister was interested well, in that, was he? He was, of course he was, and he found it entirely wrong and unacceptable, as you and I do. Uh, absolutely wrong and absolutely unacceptable. And uh, that's, 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 you know, that is... He did tell me uh, that it has happened in a number of other cases around the country. I didn't ask him for the locations. He says there are people who have done that, and uh, he's aware of a number of situations. So I'll follow that up with him, Michael, uh, later in terms of how they, you know, what they actually did. But I'm just waiting to see this letter first to see what's in it, and to see, you know, obviously mm. what the wishes of the families are, and if we can fulfil them. But like it's, it's, it, it must never happen again. And obviously, people who have behaved in that way, you know, there has to be a penalty for them as well. Like, they can't ever do business again with them. With with the department, is it? Yeah, I don't think they should be able to, not at all, no, because Mm. if you've abused uh, your your residents in this way, if you've charged them for fees for issues that that they have no uh, responsibility for, you know that that's that that is not that's not acceptable. Okay, and will that mean that that house then will uh, no longer be a, an option for housing Ukrainian refugees or other people seeking international protection? Well, I, I, as I understand it, Michael, I don't know the full details of this place. I'm just actually mm. trying to get more detail on it. I understand that the that the furlongs I understand lease are rented from the actual owners, so they don't actually own the property. Mm. So if they're if they're no longer involved in that house because uh, they, you know if they don't have a contract, I don't know what their legal arrangement is. So I suppose, uh, but let's put it a different way: if, if if they're no longer involved, it doesn't mean that the house can't be used again in the future by by different party. Mm. Okay, you know, but you you don't you don't see the department having a, a relationship with them, uh, and therein lies. Uh, perhaps uh, an obstacle to providing uh, accommodation. We spoke on Friday as well about how Ukrainian refugees are being moved out of the accommodation that they've had for some time uh, elsewhere. Uh, And we don't know if this has anything to do with this story or or not, but we have heard anecdotally of Ukrainians being moved out because there's more money in providing accommodation uh, to international protection refugees, uh, asylum seekers, than it is to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, Was that something that you managed to speak to the minister about? I, I didn't, Michael, because our conversation was solely about the, you know, the issue yesterday. Yeah. Um, I spoke to him for about five minutes, but I'm more than happy to follow it up. In fact, that was one of the things that I think the forums actually said. I think if I said it right, that there was more. If I heard it right on your show, that there was more money available for IPC. Uh, you know, or, I, I'm not quite sure the exact mm. comment that was made, but uh, clearly, clearly, it would be wrong that 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 people were moved. Uh, from one house to another because the second group would mean more money uh, to the to the owner or the, the person who leases it. Um, so, but I, I, I will try and address all those issues if I can. Um, mm. uh, do, do, does uh, this open up a, a can of worms, uh, perhaps one that should have uh, been opened some time ago um, uh, about uh, the incentives to accommodate refugees uh, and that if you're going to pay more for one set, uh, well, then uh, you're discriminating against the other set, are you not? 
Of course you are, Michael. Of course you are. Uh, and I said, I, I don't know the facts of that. Mm. But if that is the case to me, that would be wrong. Of course it would be wrong. Mm. But then there are other types of services that can be provided as well. Like, I, I don't actually know and I'm not, I'm not up to speed on what, you know, on what each group actually gets in terms of the service provided to them. Mm. And there may be people who have specific specific skills. I I don't know that are that are available. I I don't truthfully know, but it certainly it certainly should be the same price for the same facility. You know, for the yeah. same services. And we heard about big amounts of money that people are making from providing accommodation. Um, is there a problem with that? Um, that shortcuts could be taken, that if people are interested in the bottom line uh, rather than providing help, uh, that the outcome could be very different. Uh, I suppose ideally uh, you'd have uh, people deciding themselves that this is something they want to do, uh, but that's not happening in very big numbers. If you take the number of holiday homes uh, that are being made available, uh, there was a a target of 20,000 homes being made available. That was what the government believed was uh, doable uh, and uh, that would have been a very small out of uh, more than 60,000 holiday homes. Uh, but uh, I think so far, just over 1,200 have been provided to house 4,000 refugees. Yeah, that is a very low number. I think one of the reasons might be, and I, I'm not qualified in this area, is that some homes, holiday homes, would be summer homes and they wouldn't have the insulation or the, you know, the capacity to survive a full winter living there in terms of standard heating or whatever. The other point is a lot of holiday homes are in very remote areas. They're on the West Coast, very beautiful areas, obviously, but very far from, you know, uh, very far from other communities um, and many miles from towns even. And, you know, one of the key things is childcare facilities, obviously, crashes and so on. Uh, places I'd say there'd be no problem getting into primary schools in, in, in rural areas. But like the, there are other issues arising, but the, the issue obviously is the war. While the war mm. goes on, we will continue to have this problem. Ireland has been very generous in taking the number of Ukrainians we have. Clearly, we're at a crisis point because of the type of accommodation. It's not like the normal accommodation. Like in this case, you look, you're talking about 18 people Mm. So there's, you know, it's very hard to find places like that. Um, but so, like, it is, it is a very serious yeah. problem, Michael, that you're okay. addressing. Yeah. All right, and I understand there's a, a group uh, that has been trying to mediate uh, a meeting between the refugees and the furlongs. Is that something that you'd be supportive of? Well, I think that anybody that can help should help. But I think the important way to help is to is is to go at the pace of the families and to talk to the families. And if they want to discuss it, that's fine. And if they want a breeder, uh, that's also fine. You know, in other words, uh, you know, I think I think the state has the key role here. It's the yeah. key role is the department. Uh, but like, obviously, the most important thing, and that is, if you want, if anybody wants to help, is to. It's it's what the families want and what they need, what they think, what they say they need is the is the appropriate thing to follow. But I mean, everybody's entitled to to help if they can, you know. And I want to make that point as well. And I don't want to criticise anybody who's you know who's trying to help. You know, I want to make that point too. Okay, all right. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, this will be a telling week, obviously. Uh, and is the is it? possible to be more exact than a week what does that mean does that mean up to the end of next weekend or the end of this working week or what does it mean 
I don't know, Michael. Yeah. I haven't seen the letter, but I, I'm assuming that it's seven days, mm. and I presume seven days from the receipt of the letter, because otherwise, that's not a week, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. But I don't know till I see that letter. Uh, All right. Okay. Well, I, I think a lot of people will be watching it with interest because there was so much interest to, uh, in what we heard on Friday's program. But thank you indeed uh, for bringing us up to speed on the situation this morning. That's Finnegale TD for Louth and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, uh, the cost of education or getting kids uh, to school, probably more accurately put, is through the roof. Many struggle with uh, those costs. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, is uh, going to uh, propose to Cabinet uh, a scheme that would make books free of charge for children going to secondary school, just as is the case for primary school children starting in September coming. Let's speak to Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Julie. Thanks for joining us. If this does happen, uh, and there's no certainty that it will happen, it won't be until September of next year, uh, and that it would be something that would be decided in the upcoming budget. Indeed, and I suppose we are delighted to hear that this has been reported that the Minister is seeking to extend free school bus. I mean, as you mentioned, right now we know there are families probably listening in who are really, really struggling to make ends meet. And the added cost of education in particular really put the burden on families during the summer months. And I mean, what we know is that by the introduction of the free school books for primary school students this year, that puts every week an extra €3.29 into the pockets of parents. That is a considerable sum throughout the year, you know, if you Mm. think about what that can pick you up. And we also know that older children cost more. So their books are a lot more. So like for an average fourth class student, you're looking at €124 for books last year. For a first year student, that jumps to €237. And that's just the books. Mm. So if that cost could be taken away from parents, it would be a really big step in terms of really trying to make education free for all of our children. Okay, well, it was a 50 million euro overall cost to the government to make primary school books free of charge. How much would it be for the secondary school books? So it's estimated to be about 70 million, which isn't actually a lot more when you consider how many more books older students have. And when you think about it as well, I know, you know, we've heard a lot in the media lately about parents saying that, you know, they might have had books in first year, they have a child now going into fourth year, they have a new child going into first year, the books are obsolete. So with the changeover in books as well, the cost goes through the roof. I mean, I remember when I was when I was younger, you'd be able to recycle the books to the younger siblings, but that's not the case anymore. Why is that? It just seems that they seem to be putting out new books all the time. Um, and I think there is something to be done there. And hopefully if there was an introduction of a free school books measure, the government, because they'd be paying for the books, might be able to put some controls on that to make sure that we're not being so wasteful when it comes to having new school books every three to four years. Well, it seems terribly wasteful, but is it necessary? I mean, some would argue it is, some would argue it isn't. I mean, some, if the curriculum changes, obviously a new book is necessary. But in a lot of subjects, the curriculum hasn't changed in 20 years. So, you know, there's a lot there's a lot there to consider when, it looks, when the government is looking at this measure about how they can actually get better value for money because they will be bulk buying for all the students in the country. So mm. it might be a way of making sure that we can really reduce the cost of education. Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, publishers will be pretty much aware if uh, that if uh, they update a particular book, uh, well, then uh, that will stop them being passed on and handed down. 
Exactly. And I mean, the other costs the families face aren't insignificant either. You know, we know that the cost of uniforms is rising. We know that the cost of picking up stationery is rising. And then you get into things like, you know, feeding children as well. So, you know, school meals is really welcome that the government is working on ensuring that by 2030, every child in the country can get a free school meal. And that's one way to ensure that really the costs are kept down for parents that all children have an equality of opportunity and all children are facilitated to learn no matter what background they come from. Because I know myself going through school, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and mm. myself and the brother to share the French book. And, you know, if I had French at the same time as him, I didn't have the book and I was given out to it. We need to remove those barriers yeah. for families to make mm. sure that all children can learn. Uh, and the idea of a child going to school without a lunch Uh, and with nothing to eat uh, until they come home in the afternoon uh, really is very hard to understand uh, um, how anybody survives, let, let alone absorbs anything that they're being taught in school. Exactly. I mean, we hear from teachers all the time, and even from young people themselves, how difficult it is if you're going into school hungry. And we know the schools are doing huge work, so even where they don't have school meals. We know the teachers, they know the children who are struggling and they might have a few bits put aside but if you're in there in an empty stomach it's very hard to concentrate. But also there's the social element of it. So when we think yeah. of food, there's a real social element to food. You know, that's where you bond with your with your classmates, you're sitting there, you're eating your lunch but if you don't have a lunch, you're trying to make people not realise you don't have a lunch and hide away. So there's a lot of impact on the child. So, I mean, it's really, really welcome that the government are going to tackle this head on because it is a great way to ensure the children particularly those in the most vulnerable families are guaranteed one meal every day so that if there is a very uh, turbulent family situation at home you know that in school that they will get that hot school meal which is what the government are looking to work towards Mm. and we know that this budget is a great opportunity for them to really progress their plans. They have a roadmap set out for the next seven years. So it's great that they're going to take the steps set out. And we need to see that in other areas of education as well. We need to see them looking at the voluntary contributions the families are forced to pay, secondary schools, books, and all the other costs that are there, the hidden costs that make going back to school a really difficult time for families. And what many would say are the unnecessary costs. You talked uh, about the school uniform. Some of them are very expensive. Some of them are are very cheap, in actual fact. Uh, And uh, given the divide uh, between the two ends of the scales, you'd have to say that the very expensive ones are unnecessarily expensive. Is there any point in sitting in a classroom with uh, the nicest of uniforms if you have an empty belly. Exactly. I mean, you, as you say, if there, is there any point in being the nicest uniform with no food? Not being able to concentrate, not being able to learn. I mean, there are measures that can be taken. As you say, some school uniforms are very reasonable and they're very attainable for families. So I think there's a lot that can be done if you look at the full area of the cost of education because we know that a lot of families, it comes out every year from the Irish League Credit Union, a lot of families have to borrow this time of year just to make ends meet. I mean, it's at a time when they have the kids at home and as we all know, older kids eat more if you have a teenager in the house they'll eat you out of the house and home over the summer so you're already struggling with those increased costs and then you're expected then to have the money then to pay out for school books for um, mm. for uniforms all of the things that come with sending a child to school and I suppose what's really important here is that older children they do cost more and even their books cost more their food costs more and last year's budget they, I suppose that wasn't really recognised in the part of the government there was additional measures like primary school books for younger children but nothing additional for those older children who do cost families more so it would be really welcome to see Minister Foley put the emphasis on trying to reduce the costs for those older children Mm. the families aren't struggling.
All right. What about child care? Uh, an awful lot of families just can't afford it. And uh, there's research uh, this morning uh, from Excel Recruitment saying 58% of couples say that their partner had to actually give up work. It mustn't have been worthwhile going to work given the cost of childcare. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen over the past number of years, you know, the government have really started to try to grapple with the cost of childcare. And I think last year in particular, we saw they made the biggest investment ever in the area of childcare, really looking at, I suppose, trying to ensure that the workers are paid fairly so that there's a quality workforce, that children are receiving a quality early years education, and then also reducing costs for families. And the hope is that in this year's budget that they'll continue along that journey to really reduce the cost. I mean, the other thing that need, that we need to be thinking about, though, is those families coming from the most vulnerable backgrounds, because we know that going to early years education is really a great leveller for those children who come from those most disadvantaged backgrounds. It's the most effective way to end child poverty. So we need to see government looking at reducing the cost for all families, but also specifically putting something in place whereby those on the lowest incomes can have very high subsidised childcare to make sure that those children can be in childcare where often they receive again coming back to you know food they receive that extra care that they might need and it is one way to really break the cycle and end child poverty Mm, It's ridiculously dear isn't it? It's quite expensive for a lot of families and as I say you know it's great to see the government again they have that plan as to how they're going to reduce it and what we really need to see now is in budget 24 that they continue along that journey to really focus on as I say increasing the wages for the staff so that you can retain Mm. the high quality staff and lowering the cost for families. It is doable. Mm. And we just need to make sure that they continue along that journey and that they don't lose focus. All right. Uh, And the most expensive in Europe, it's a a long road, isn't it, to uh, meeting uh, the costs elsewhere. I mean, in some of uh, the Scandinavian countries, uh, for example, people pay little or nothing for childcare. Indeed. And I mean, there are different ways and different models that can be adapted. And I think the government really needs to look at trying to grapple with, you know, what what model they would like to bring going forward. Because, you know, for example, you could have a model that is similar to primary schools um, and we could adopt that type of model or a Scandinavian type model. Because really, childcare is essential for many reasons, both for the child. We know that a quality childcare experience can really be incredibly beneficial to the child, but also, you know, for the parents and, and particularly for women going into the workforce, you know that a lot of women are the parents who end up staying at home, not always, yeah. but, mm. but often. So there's I thought that was the most interesting thing, by the way, Julie, from uh, that research from Excel Recruitment, uh, because as you say, the majority uh, of women are giving up work. Uh, that's yeah. 62% of those who gave up work, and over half of couples say that one of them have to. Uh, but that still leaves quite a, a lot of men giving up work, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. And I mean, mm. it's, I mean, 38% of men. Yeah, often the narrative is is that it's it's all women, but there is a substantial amount of men. And I do think, you know, we need to get to a position whereby we're really looking at where we invest our money and investing in early years education, investing in childcare really is an investment that pays off for the child and for the parents and for the family as a whole. So really we need to be thinking those long-term vision pieces about where we want to see Ireland in the next 10 years and who we want to ensure have the best start in life, but also want to ensure the families have a good working, fulfilled life as well, that no one is forced to give up work if they don't want to, and equally no one is forced to work if they want to stay at home.
All right, Julie, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government meets uh, for the last time today, the last cabinet meeting before the summer break, uh, and uh, the government returns at uh, the end of August. But there is still work to do, including approving plans, which is expected for a 10 million euro programme, which will make publicly funded fertility treatments available to couples. Let's speak to Kathleen Funchen, spokesperson on children equality and disability with Sinn Féin. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This €10 million was actually put aside in the last budget and it it looks like this is going to progress today. Yeah, um, good morning, Michael. Uh, First of all, yeah, it was supposed to be, I suppose, coming into play. People would have been maybe expecting um, by now, but I will say it's welcome because this is something that is long overdue and that many couples and many families have been waiting for and have also, I suppose, it is something that, you know, every now and again, certain constituents will contact you, checking in to see is there any progress on this legislation or where all of this is at. However, I do have to say it is very disappointing to see that there's plans to only fund one cycle um, because I think the vast majority of cases, I mean, for some people, it does work in one IVF cycle and that's fantastic. But we also do know that a lot of people have to have two and sometimes three. So I would have liked to at least seen two cycles being funded and, and up to three. Um, and that is, I would, I would say, kind of common practice in other countries where there is um, public funding available for this. So I, that's that's one thing. But I would hope, I suppose, that there might be some changes that can be made to this um, as well over the next uh, few months, uh, you know, that if the minister is um, listening mm. to people and listening to their concerns about this. Okay, so that uh, more uh, would be available. Obviously, there'd be an additional cost uh, to that. But, uh, I mean, as you say, you do hear of people uh, who've tried a few times, uh, even more than that, uh, I think maybe five or six times, and then end up with triplets. Uh, it can be very successful, though, for couples. It can be, and, and it's fantastic. And it's great that, you know, in general, the way, I suppose, the medical world is changing and that there's so many throughout all aspects of medicine there's so many things that we often find ourselves saying isn't it great they can do that and like let's say nowadays as such so it's it is amazing and it, it is great for people but it is a very difficult time for for families and for couples and for people as well and it can you know it can be extremely stressful we you know a lot of people will know people in their own lives that have gone through this it has led to potential relationship breakdown so it's not a, an easy process and there's lots of different reasons why people need to go down this road as well. Mm. And I do think that um, there's a very human impact on all of this and a very psychological impact on all of this. And anybody who has family or friends that have gone through this or are going through this process will see firsthand. And maybe a lot of times people don't really understand what it's like until you actually do see it um, firsthand. So it is good um, yeah. that this announcement is being made and and hopefully like, we will see this progressing. But I suppose there's some things like that that I'd like to to see if we can kind of um, progress on it in terms of, of the, the access to the amount of cycles mm. and uh, something that, that we deem secondary infertility um, is, is, is totally excluded as well, mm. which can be can be very difficult for people. So there is, it, it's good news, but I suppose it, it, it needs some tweaking in, in our view, definitely. Okay. Uh, and as you say, many people go down this road for many different reasons and some of them know 
the cause of infertility and others don't uh, if you're to be funded by the state uh, to go uh, for one of these treatments whether that's IVF or whatever the treatment is uh, you must know what the cause is yeah and i mean like that's that's another good point because often it is it is unexplained um you know infertility and it seems like you know everything is fine, but yes, you know people are obviously struggling to have have babies and and have a family. So like that is even more frustrating for a person because you're not being told like okay, this is the reason and this is what you need to do. You know, and like I think in all aspects of life, people think if you know what the problem is, you can try and work on that. So I suppose, and I do know as well, just to say that there's there's clinical reasons for some of the decisions as well. And mm. I like, you know, obviously I'm not a clinical expert and, and and don't want to try and claim to be, but I do think that some of that is a bit harsh in terms of because um, I mean people currently go for IVF, maybe who can afford it, who have unexplained infertility, and it works. Uh, and in some cases, that can work in one cycle. So they actually might be a good category of, of people in a way. So I do think that some of some of the stuff is very restrictive. Mm. Um, and you know, well, that would I be very restrictive if I'm right in thinking that 25 percent of couples who are infertile know the cause of the infertility. That would mean that 75 percent of infertile yeah. couples are immediately excu- excluded from funding. Yeah, exactly. So I do think that that there is a number of things that need to be looked at. For example, the the body providing one cycle. And I mean, I think in the vast majority of cases where there's publicly funded IVF, it would never be more than three cycles. So you're not talking about, you know, endless cycles and, and endless money. And like you have to look at the, the health, particularly for a woman in this situation as well. So, mm. I mean, I, I think it's reasonable to, uh, to look for more than one cycle, definitely. I think it should have started at two and you would be hoping as a scheme is is developed and grows that you could, you could grow that to three. I do think as well it's unfair to exclude secondary in, infertility and I also think it's unfair to exclude, as you're talking about, people who have unexplained infertility. And I think that that's different than maybe some of the other clinical reasons that, that some of us, you know, obviously who are not in the clinical world won't fully understand. But I do think uh, that unexplained infertility is is particularly frustrating mm. and difficult Um all infertility is frustrating and difficult, I should say. But in that case, just to be totally excluded, you know, I mean, imagine how you must feel this morning if you're if you're already kind of struggling with the fact that you don't understand or don't know the reason, and then you're told, well, now you're also excluded from this scheme that could yeah. help you. You know what I mean? It's mm. like I do think we need to kind of look at the at the human aspect of all of this as well, um, because it it takes its toll. Um, on people. I mean, there's specific counselling services for people going through infertility mm. and, you know, there's a reason for that. You know, well, so What about age? Uh, a maximum age is uh, to be part of this. Are, are women just simply too old to have babies? So that's the, the, age, the age one, I think, is, is um, again, like they would come back and say, like, obviously there's, you know, clinical evidence and, you know, as you get older. However, I do think, in general, women are having children a lot later in life. It's not unusual to be in your no. early forties and having your first child. Um, so I, I do think. I'd Is like there a danger with that, though? I mean, let's come back to the clinical question, isn't it? Uh, but uh, I mean, yeah. perhaps it's not uh, as wise as it's possible, but maybe not as wise to have children in your forties. 
Well, look, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not sure mm. if anyone can actually really ever answer that question because yeah. you will, when you say that, you have a whole load of people that will tell you that they had their children, you know, in their forties or their first child or their last child or whatever it might have been. Mm. And there's loads of examples where that's worked out fine. And I, I, I do want to stress that there could be clinical reasons for that, obviously. But I also do think that life is changing and the world is changing, and people are having children a lot later in life. So I think that that should be taken into consideration. I'd like to see more information in relation to that one. Mm. And what, and what the age is set at? I think I think it, it is envisaged that it would be 40. But then some of these details are only coming out this morning yeah. and like that, we're not 100% sure. So that's the other thing just to say to anyone. And, and, and weight is going to be an issue. Your BMI, uh, are, are, are people going to be denied yeah. for being overweight? That's, and, and I imagine that, well, I don't imagine, I know that that would be a clinical um that that's definitely a clinical decision. Um, mm. So I think some of the stuff that you know the experts in, in in the area have looked at, I can kind of understand. But however, I do think what we need to to see is some of those exclusions being dealt with straight away. For example, the one cycle, mm. the secondary infertility, and the unexplained infertility. Then, as the scheme gets up and running, I do think we need to see like can it be reviewed? For example, can the age limitations be looked at? Um, and, and other factors as well because obviously some mm. of the stuff is clinical and we do need to, to sure. respect some of that okay. process too. Well, what, what, what about couples that already have a child or children? Yeah, that's kind of secondary infertility so that's totally excluded um, which I think, you know, the, the vast majority of people going for fertility treatment um, to have a second child, it, it is to have a second child. It's usually when they just have one child and again, that could be unexplained infertility or something could have happened in the meantime that could be a health condition or a health problem. I think it's unfair to totally exclude uh, families and couples like that. And I, I, when I heard the announcement, obviously we were kind of expecting this announcement this morning, I was thinking of all the people that we're currently dealing with um, and in relation to this legislation and a lot of them will be excluded now um, in terms of like, secondary infertility and, and what you've already touched on in relation to unexplained infertility. And I think that, that those kind of exclusions need to be removed. And I don't think that there's a, in my view anyway, a, a kind of a clinical reason for, for those to have been excluded in the first place. I think some of the other more kind of medical detail Yes, we have to respect that, but mm. I do think, I do think that everybody. I don't think it's fair to say just because you know why you're having fertility issues or fertility issues that that you're included in the scheme, and if you don't know, you're excluded. So, you know, I think there's changes like that that they could make that would make it quite a good key scheme to start off with. And then I think as we develop it, because this will be the first time that we we have a publicly funded scheme in this country then I think we need to look at, at reviewing it and seeing how we can, um, I suppose, include uh, as many people as possible in it. OK, well, look, thank you indeed for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning. Uh, that is Kathleen Funchen, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on children, equality and disability. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, today is World Drowning Prevention Day. Let's speak to Parag Judge, uh, the marketing executive uh, for Water Safety Ireland. Good morning, Parag, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. You're calling on people to do one thing or improve one thing to help prevent drownings. Uh, I suppose it's not exactly beach weather, but having said that, there's probably a lot of people on the water today, as there is every day, because uh, an awful lot more people are using the water these days. Yeah, absolutely, that's right, and thanks for having me on the show. 
Um, so World Urban Prevention Day, um, it, it's held on July 25th every year and uh, has been the case since 2021. And um, it's an opportunity to highlight the tragic impact of drowning on families and, and communities nationwide and, and globally. And um, to mark to mark the day, ourselves at Water Safety Ireland, the Coast Guard and the RNLI, we're calling people, as you, as you rightly pointed out, to, to do one thing or improve one thing. Um, it's it's uh, Drowning is responsible for an estimated uh, 236,000 drownings globally every year. So it's a significant public health issue, but it can be influenced when people make small changes in their behaviour. So this year we're asking people to, you know, maybe learn a water safety skill, maybe share a piece of water safety advice um, with loved ones and family, you know, change one mind about safety around water safety. And a couple of the things that we're asking people to do is, in particular, to to go blue for World Drowning Prevention Day. It's um, the colour that's synonymous with the day. So no matter who or where you are, you can play a role by maybe, you know, illuminating your organisation's building in the colour blue or lighting up a window in your area or even just consider maybe, you know, painting your, your face blue with blue face paint and, um, you know, bringing the hashtag ground and prevention uh, to to your social media networks. And we've got some uh, images available on uh, World Drowning Prevention Day, Dalai And mm. uh, again, the hashtag is hashtag Drowning Prevention. But on, on the practical side of things, mm. besides that, we're also asking swimmers um, to be aware of of dangerous rip currents and to only swim at lifeguarded waterways um, or a place that's traditionally known to be safe. So mm. you know, rip currents, they're, they're, they're very strong currents. They can quickly drag people from the shallows into deeper water. Mm. The best of swimmers um, get caught out by them, don't they? Absolutely, absolutely, mm. and and that's because they're they're easily mistaken to be a safe swimming spot. Um, you know, sometimes they can be represented by let's say a break in the water, um, but they're actually surrounded by a, a choppier uh, sea surface. So, uh, the best way to avoid them is to swim at lifeguard waterways and swim between the red and yellow flags. So, our lifeguards. Uh, they're there to protect. They're they're trained and assessed to to look after people and, and yeah. make sure that people are, are staying in between the, the the safe areas. So and they have protected people over and over again. It would seem uh, rescuing people from the water is not uncommon for lifeguards. No, absolutely. I suppose lots of us, um, you know, we, we get into tricky situations that maybe we aren't expecting. And there can be lots of different reasons for those. Um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we mightn't have the, the right information in advance of going to our location. So it's important to maybe look at the, the wind and weather forecasts and check the type of tides that are in place before going even ask uh, for some local knowledge before going to your swimming location and um, before you get into the water it's important as well to acclimatise mm. before going into the to the sea or whatever waterway you might be going to um, so one uh, possibility there is to perhaps throw a little bit of water down the back of your neck just get used to the temperature of the water and um, that that's a handy tip for uh, preventing against the likes of hypothermia and okay. cold shock mm. Um, and it's also important as well to listen to your body. But the main thing is, you know, don't be setting uh, time limits um, that you that you feel that you have to be uh, in the water for a certain length of time. Listen to your body. Get out when you feel uh, it's right to do so. If you're not comfortable, don't set time goals and make sure you get out of the water when mm. you feel it's right. I don't think I've ever known anybody who jumped straight in. Uh, but cold shock uh, is obviously commonplace. People do, do they? 
Yeah, it's 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 always a possibility, and uh, I suppose what we're um, asking people to do is, uh, I suppose, just take a, a common sense approach. Um, you know, never never swim alone either, in case you mm. do get into difficulty. And wear, um, you know, a brightly coloured swim hat and a brightly bring a brightly coloured toe float if you can as well. It always helps to make sure to be seen. Um, mm. And in conjunction with that, um, it's also crucial not to mix alcohol with water. Also, um, alcohol is a factor in three out of uh, ten uh, drownings in Ireland. Uh, so it's uh, another serious issue that uh, is a contributory factor. Um, mm. And besides that as well, you know, it's important for people to um, I suppose get dry and dressed in warm layers of clothing after you come out of the water. Um, you you want to make sure that you're maybe drinking uh, a warm drink, that you're bringing your body temperature back to normal. Yeah. And I take it there the kind of uh, things that led uh, to the lifeguards uh, giving first aid to people six and a half thousand times last year. Yes, absolutely. Um, I suppose there's, there's a, a lot of different things that kind of factor into that and that they've also rescued 583 people uh, nationwide uh, last year as well. So our lifeguards, they are very busy during the summer period. Um, I, I know the weather perhaps hasn't been um, as as we would expect uh, in recent weeks uh, for the time of year, but it is certainly a, a busy time of year for them. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And, and that's because there's more people going to our waterways naturally. And um, we have some fantastic locations around the country. But uh, it, it is important that people um, listen to the lifeguards when you're there, heed the advice that, that they're giving to you. And uh, again, to swim within your depth and stay within your depth. And crucially, again, stay within the red and yellow flag areas. Okay. And what about supervision of children? Has that been a, a problem for you? Yeah, so um, again, it's, it's an ever-constant issue, so we would uh, tell parents and guardians always provide uh, constant, uninterrupted adult supervision to children. And I suppose the, the, the uninterrupted is, is kind of an important part there as well. So make sure that um, children are always supervised and sometimes they might not be as aware of the dangers as adults are. So it, it's great if they do have somebody who is there looking after them and crucially as well um, linked to that is never bring inflatable toys to open water locations like uh, beaches, rivers and lakes. They're very susceptible to currents and strong winds taking them away from shore so the message is don't, don't buy them don't bring them to those locations because they are a real risk and the message is leave the inflatable toys at home, fly this breeze and take children away from shore and out of their depth. So that's always a big one to watch out for. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, amazing how quickly they can float out much deeper than your depth and you're asking people not just to watch out for themselves but to watch out for other people as well and to ring the alarm bell, if you like, if they see somebody in trouble. 
That's right. Yeah. So if if you see somebody in trouble, um, I suppose that an important thing to do would be to uh, call nine 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 or one one two and uh, ask for the emergency services. Ask for the Coast Guard in particular. And um, there's there's also uh, the possibility that you might be able to um, shout, reach, or throw. You might be able to help somebody in the water as well. So shout to to calm, uh, encourage, and orientate them back to shore. Because when you're in that difficult situation, it can be tough to to kind of orientate yourself. Reach with anything that avoids you needing to enter the water. So you might decide to use a branch, maybe a pole or even a piece of clothing, whatever I suppose is handy in that situation. And finally, um, if, if you can, if there's one nearby, throw a ring boy or a floating object to them. So you'll see the ring boys in, uh, in their yellow boxes at various locations across the country. And uh, Water Safety Ireland, um, Water Safety Ireland education team and volunteers have been busy uh, visiting, visiting primary schools uh, in the last few months teaching children how to throw a ring boy. Um, mm. An essential life-saving skill, I suppose, that people uh, perhaps don't give um, too much consideration to until you're in, a, in that situation. But we're asking everybody now to, to learn how to throw a ring boy. Um, we have some handy explainer videos online okay. on worldrunningprevention.ie there as well. So some very helpful information on that website. And uh, again, the, the, the important thing to do there is call for extra help if it's required, mm. call the emergency services and uh, and throw the ring boy then as well. Okay, very good. Never would have presumed there would be a problem throwing a, a, a ring boy. Must look at that. Look at that. Uh, World Drowning Prevention Day. Ie. Porik, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the program today. Porik Judge, the marketing executive for Water Safety Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us today. Noel McCormick uh, in touch, WhatsApping the program. He says, uh, "Good morning. Just wondering if you're going to highlight the traffic situation in Drogheda with uh, the closing of." Uh, the old bridge, the obelisk next week uh, and the opening of the new road at Bella McKenney the town is going to be in a crisis. Uh, could you highlight the tolls going into and out of the town and get the local politicians to pressurise the government to get rid of uh, the tolls in the town, the only town in Ireland with tolls. Thanks Noel uh, I think you probably missed our programme uh, last week uh, and we were speaking to the three TDs based in Drogheda about the closure of uh, the Obelisk Bridge uh, and we did a little bit of groundwork into it. Uh, the Minister for Transport is Eamon Ryan. He said nothing to do with me. That's up to TII who can renegotiate the tolls uh, and it's also up to the local authority. Uh, so we got in touch with TII because there seems to be very few options in, in the way of stopping this chaos that you're talking about uh, and it is going to be utter chaos in Drogheda when they close the Obelisk Bridge I would think, Noel. Uh, so we got in touch with TII to say to ask if they were doing anything about the tolls, uh, if they were trying to negotiate with the toll operator uh, and they referred us to Louth County Council uh, Louth County Council said uh, that there will be road traffic diversion signs in place uh, we did speak to the three TDs. Uh, uh, they would have uh, agreed that it seems that nothing is done to put any alternatives in place. They had some suggestion like the tolls and the dolly bridge and different things like that, Noel. Um, but it seems as though uh, we're walking slowly, blindfoldedly into an exceptionally bad period of traffic 
over the period of 10 months that this bridge is closed uh, because when the bridge is closed the road is closed uh, my grandson has just finished his first year in secondary school says uh, another caller whatsapping us and about a thousand euro for books the laptop and the uniform he hasn't even opened loads of the books it's a disgrace the weight of the school bag is worrying too thank you indeed uh, that's I think the way an awful lot of people would feel uh, but thank you for sharing those thoughts with us uh, as we've been discussing this morning the government is to look at making school books free uh, for secondary school children as well as primary school children. Um, we had somebody else in touch with us saying, I know that school can be expensive but there are people out there who are crying that they can't afford to put their kids back to school. Uh, on the other hand, they're on holidays four or five times a year and out drinking every weekend. <laughs> I take it those people do have the money but they're deciding to spend it on something else. And thank you for sharing that with us as well. A couple of uh, people in touch with us as well about the situation uh, that uh, the Ukrainians have found themselves in on the North Road, being told to move to St Mary's in Drumcar. Uh, they're sitting in as such, they're holding firm and they're not moving. Uh, and they've been given this week-long grace period by the department. What happens after that, I don't know, but there doesn't seem to be many options in terms of alternative accommodation in Drogheda for the 18 residents. A number of people in touch with us this morning, uh, as there were on Friday, there were so many messages to us uh, about the way that uh, the management, the landlords had spoken to the refugees and we heard clips recorded covertly on the programme. People asking, uh, is there going to be uh, an investigation into what we were listening to on the programme and how does that work if they weren't meant to ask for money but they were asking for money and getting paid by the government at the same time uh, does anybody uh, look into what happened uh, and um, what happens next questions along those lines uh, thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us today. If you haven't been in touch yet and you would like to make comment, uh, well, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number, as always, is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp a message to us either. 86 658 is the text number. That's 86 658 A text message or a WhatsApp message if you want to get in touch with us today. Uh, and you can email, obviously. Email michael at lmfm. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, the Climate Change Advisory Council is telling the government to get its act together, that it is acting in a way that is unacceptable in terms of reducing emissions and that it really needs to up the ante if it is going to meet its own targets. Uh, one way of doing that, perhaps, is introducing what they call a road user charge, uh, and that would mean that that it would cost you more to drive on the roads uh, and it's also to help with the loss of revenue that the government is experiencing. They're expecting that to be between one and a half billion and three billion euro lost to the exchequer uh, because of electric vehicles. Uh, uh, the Irish Daily Mail uh, reported yesterday that uh, commuters could end up paying €38 Euro to drive from Maynooth to Dublin or from Cork to Dublin, uh, there could be a charge of €163. Euro. 
That's quite a lot of money. Darren O'Rourke is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate. He's also a member of the Oireachtas Transport Committee and on the line there. Very good morning to you uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What do you make of uh, this proposal? Yeah, well, um, I, I suppose the first thing I want to say, and, and not to the defend, defend the government at all, um, but I don't think it is a proposal. I think it is. Um, it was reported in the Daily Mail yesterday, not because the government leaked it or I think the government wanted it out in the world at all, but because it was requested under freedom of information. Um, so we know that there has been this Project Bruce, as they call it, the Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Um, there's two things happening uh, that are driving this research uh, into how we might uh, uh, charge people for using the roads. One thing is, as you said, um, we have a tax system at the minute that's based on emissions, and at some point in the future, Almost every vehicle will be electric vehicles, so that's a very significant uh, reduction in revenue if, if, if the current mode is, is based on emissions. And we have the, the tax strategy group report in July and the last last number of Julys, they have, have pointed towards that as a, as a potential problem for, for this government and future governments. The other thing that's happening, and, and TII are interested in this, is that in the middle of the 2030s, um, so it's a, a way away, yes, um, a number of our uh, toll contracts are running out so that toll contracts will be up. And the question is, what will the future government do in relation to that? So so they've been, um, and I think they're at a, a, a very early stage of it because I, I raised it with them uh, when they were before the Transport Committee a number of weeks ago. They've been scenario planning and throwing out, uh, trying to work out possible scenarios that they could uh, take into the future. Uh, so, so looking at options um, and the extreme option, which made the headlines yesterday, uh, was this one of charging people very significant monies, like 38 euros mm. to travel from Dublin to Maynooth, 163 euros from Dublin to Cork. Um, so that's, I would say, um, like politically, I, I just don't see that as feasible for for any government. I, I, actually, I think it would it would have a devastating impact on the economy. So it's not something I think that that any uh, sane government could countenance. Because what would happen? You know, people wouldn't be able to afford it. The economy would grind to a halt, and everybody would lose, and, and, including you know whatever government might be stupid enough to to try and propose that. But it is a it is one of these scenarios that was that was proposed. I think that the bigger point for me is these are real challenges for for uh, for the state. Um, a massive challenge. Uh, I mean, for uh, transport to be down three billion euro. What are the alternatives? I mean, how do you make money like that back up? Yeah, I, I think I think for me the the real question is so there's there's two things. Um, we do need to see this modal shift. Uh, we need to get as many people onto public and active tra- transport as possible. Where there uh, is transport. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's uh, that's really where I think the conversation needs to be. And, and you, you you open the segment with, with reference to the Climate Change Advisory Council and their critique. Last week or the week before, we had the EPA report which showed that transport, not agriculture or residential or or, or, or power and, and electricity, tr- transport is the real outlier um, because because people 
don't have the alternatives. People um, are dependent on, and we are dependent on uh, our, our private vehicles. And the, the vast, vast majority of those private vehicles are running on petrol or diesel. You know, uh, electric cars are are still a small part of the equation. Um, so, so we need to change that, and we need policy to to drive that change. And for me, I think, you know. Uh, uh, you know, if it, if it was me advising, you know, and I try to advise with it within our own party, of course, uh, we have a, a very we're we're at a cliff edge here in terms of of the transport sector, in terms of the emissions, in terms of the climate. But at, we're, we're in a unique opportunity in Ireland with the the massive um, revenues we have in this budget and looking into the future. And I think it would make absolute sense for for this government and for future governments to, to look and to invest very significantly in a number of areas. One is in renewable energy, um, state-owned renewable energy, that, that we build a new economy in relation to that. Two is in the area of housing. We have a housing crisis that needs to be addressed. And for me, three is in the transport infrastructure and principally in the area of rail-based transport infrastructure. I think it is not to the fore. There, you know, It's the long finger and everything. I believe there is a weakness within the National Transport Authority um, just in terms of its, its remit in the mm. first instance. But we have the All-Island Strategic Rail Review or what we hear now. It will be published in, in draft form in the next number of weeks. But like so many things, and we've had many, many reports over the years, and we've regularly discussed on, on your own show, Michael, the, right. the issue of, of nav and rail, or the fact of the, the fare and equity up the, the East Coast, or the fact that the the, the the Belfast Dublin line is far too slow. I think they're just ne- the, the transformational shift in Irish transport policy needs to be a, a, a move towards rail-based transport because I I think that that you know mm. the, it, it, comparing comparing uh, bus transport with rail transport there is no comparison. They're not the same thing. They're both public transport. Fair enough. Yeah. But Ask anybody the experience, the dependence, the reliability, the experience on on uh, uh, travelling on the train compared to travelling on the on the bus. Mm. There's, there's mm. absolutely no comparison. And I think you know if we had a really dependable rail system that was first class, world class, um, you would see a modal shift there, a shift for, yeah, in a way that we would never have if we have a. Uh, 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 you know, I think you're probably right, but you know, um, would we be alive to see it? How long? does it take to build railways yeah yeah and i think i think again and again we have um and it's a, it's a you know it's a feature that's come up repeatedly and i've noticed it in recent weeks and months um where people are looking and asking the question you know the national children's hospital um the uh, you know the metrolink the rail to nav and you take the take why do things um take so long to build in Ireland and they and they've done you know there's international experts this guy uh, Brent Flyberg who, who looks at mega projects and does international comparisons between you know how these projects are delivered in, in different places and you can see that uh, actually the English speaking world does really poorly but Ireland does really poorly uh, in terms of delivery, delivery of these major projects and there's a reason why there's a number of factors some of it and we know you've discussed it before the planning system, uh, the political system, um, the the ability to to deliver projects on time, on budget, mm. and uh, like it's it's something that 
uh, absolutely needs to be a focus for, for this government and for, for, for future governments. No doubt there's all sorts of reasons uh, that make trains far more preferable than buses, the speed alone, let alone the comforter access to toilets. But even if there were buses, uh, that would be a starting point, wouldn't it? And uh, I think people would tend to use a bus more frequently than when a bus isn't available. I think that goes without oh, saying. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and this is one area where, where we have, uh, when I was in the transport spokesperson brief, and I, I, I still sit on the, the transport committee, but we look very closely at the government's proposals in relation to the, the expansion of the of the bus network and the improvement of existing services. And, and as recently as a couple of weeks ago, I got the update in relation to County Mead, um, they're supposed to have a five-year plan, but in 2023, there will be two new bus services provided in County Meath, just two, um, running from from Kells to Virginia and Kells to, to, to Bailiaborough. And you can still see, uh, and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Loud and right across the country, where it's just this incremental, incremental tippy-toe approach in relation to in relation to the expansion of services when what we need is an explosion. Um, and we're not having it at all. We're not having it in terms of investment and we're certainly not having it in terms of implementation. And I think that's exactly what is reflected in the EPA report last week. That's why we have those results. And the, the, the Climate Change Advisory Council, that's exactly what they are saying. It, it's about implementation. It's about delivery. The plans you know, we've got, we've got plenty of plans, but we've got a failure to, to implement. And that's what's concerning from the from the Climate Change Advisory Council report this morning is that it looks very similar to last year's report. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing. It's about implementation, and the, the same weaknesses there, and, and that's a very significant problem. Mm, it may be, but there's also always being great resistance uh, and uh, that resistance to the measures that are already being put in place but there's no way that those measures are going to be sufficient so the resistance is only going to be all the more is it not if government does start to, to uh, expedite the plans that it has to reach those targets. Well, well, you see, I, I, for me, there isn't resistance. You know, there won't be resistance to the rollout of the public transport network. There won't be the, the resistance. Well, nobody wants. Well, a lot of people would say, "I'm not getting an electric vehicle because it's too soon. They don't drive far enough. Um, or, or they're the, too expensive. They're too expensive. Yeah. Too expensive. Well, of course. But, but, but apart but, from the expense of the car itself, uh, then there's the practical issues like trying to get a, a charge and having to queue for a charge because somebody else is charging uh, their car before you. Let alone having to stop for an hour or two hours if you you're in a queue. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But the, the major shift that government want to see in relation to, and, and future government, you know, if Sinn Féin was leading the government, the major shift that we would want to see is, is the uh, people shifting from private cars onto public transport. So what, what do we need to achieve that? We need a public transport system that's fit for purpose. And I don't think there's any opposition to, uh, to, to that. What there is is a, is, a, is a delay on behalf of government to deliver it. So I, I think in all of these things, and at, you know, at the same time here, we're talking about headlines of massive charges for, for motor, motor car users. Mm. For me, it's a matter of sequencing. It's about like what can the state deliver? What 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 you know? Can we instead of shifting it onto the individual and finger pointing at them? What what, uh, what what's the area that the state can do the most amount of lifting? And for me, that is in the transport sector. It's in the rollout in a 
a rapid way of of the expansion of public transport services. Buses, fair enough, in, in, in the main, and there is a plan there that's been slowly delivered. But I think the real gap is in, you know, an ambitious plan to expand the public rail network and, 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 and put freight on it as well, and you get you get an additional benefit. I don't I don't think there's any opposition to that. But what there is is a, a failure for, for government to plan and prepare and deliver it. And I think when, when the, the challenge in the, in the climate sector, and it's the same in terms of, of agriculture, you have abstract uh, cliff edge type conversations that, uh, that, you know, when people read that headline in the, in the Daily Mail yesterday, their, their immediate logic, logical thought is, well, I don't have that money. And I don't have an alternative mode of transport to get to work. We live in a you know com- mm. commuter counties. Um, people are al- already told on the double in, in some instances, and, and on the triple if you're if you're going on the, on the M50. So 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 in that case, climate action equals punitive measures. And in my opinion, that approach will not work. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate and a member of the Oireachtas Transport Committee, Darren O'Rourke, is uh, Sinn Féin TD for Meath East. Thanks to Sharon, who's been in touch. And uh, Sharon is trying to be patient, I imagine. Uh, she tells me that she's in the queue for pre-sale tickets for Coldplay for Friday's show. And there's only 44,000 people in front of her in the queue. Stay patient, Sharon. You'll get her. You'll get her. I know you will. OK, thank you indeed uh, for your message. If you'd like to comment on the programme, our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp 086 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a government task force is to look at how pharmacists may help what is an overload on GP services by extending prescriptions for patients. Let's speak once again to Sheena Mitchell, who's uh, the owner of a pharmacy and creator of Wondercare.ie and to the Wondercare podcast series. Good morning to you, Sheena, and thanks for joining us uh, this is something that you've been campaigning for for some time. May not go quite as far as you'd been suggesting, uh, but I, I take it you welcome this as a positive step. Absolutely, I do. You know, it's it's great that it's been taken seriously. It was last December, I think I wrote to the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health asking for something, you know, to be done because I'm so upset and frustrated seeing my patients coming into my community pharmacy and having to refer them back to the GP unnecessarily time and time again when they aren't able to access appointments. And the GPs themselves will admit that they are overworked and overburdened. So for me, it was really clear that we have an opportunity to collaborate and use our skills to the maximum of our ability in the name of patient care. And for me, it was clear that's what needed to be done. So it was about, I think, February or late January when I received a reply back saying they'd look at it. So my only frustration is, while yes, it's great in July that there is a task force being established, like for me, solutions could have been put in place last winter and spring. And I just would have slight concerns about, you know, I don't, I'm not one to love a committee. So while I think the task force is really necessary, I just hope that there is urgency for this winter. Well, little prospect of that if its first recommendations are to be in October, I take it. 
Yeah, exactly. And even looking at it, like we saw with uh, other schemes that were rolled out, like the carbon access for pregnant patients suffering from hyperemesis, there was no pharmacist really involved from the community on the rollout of that. And that has turned into a subsequent disaster, which has made it very difficult for patients to actually become eligible to, to gain access to that medication. So for me, I would love to have seen more community pharmacists on the committee, on the task force. Like there are pharmacists there, there are five, but they're mainly from kind of legal, clinical and administrative mm. areas of pharmacy. And it's, you know, the pharmacists on the ground who are dealing with the ridiculous level of bureaucracy that we get from the HSE which is so time-consuming. And by reducing the burden of unnecessary administrative work, you know, that would free us up to care for our patients, which is why we went into our profession in the first place. Okay, there are some conditions you believe you're capable of diagnosing uh, and prescribing for. Uh, That doesn't seem to be the proposal here. Uh, It it would be that the doctors, the GP, would diagnose conditions and write a prescription for somebody, but the pharmacist would be able to extend that prescription. So actually, there's a whole range. They've actually gone further than just pharmacists diagnosing minor ailments. They're actually reviewing independent prescribing altogether. So... What they're talking about initially is extending prescriptions. So, you know, your typical example there would be someone who uses a reliever inhaler for occasional symptoms of asthma, which has been the same for the last 10 years and will be likely ongoing. So in those cases at the moment, um, we have to send them back to the GP every six months, even though they don't really need a review. And, you know, so they're, they're looking at that initially. But they are then looking at how patients can basically or how pharmacists can look at prescribing for minor ailments. So some such things would be like for conjunctivitis, so minor conjunctivitis. Mm. So that is a simple bacterial infection in children, which any parent will be well familiar with. And in the UK, I was 20 years ago be able to provide antibiotic eye drops, which is the only course of treatment that yeah. is recommended mm. by any guideline. But at doctor. the moment, the, the parents have to go to the doctor and say, my child has conjunctivitis. They've diagnosed the child themselves uh, and the GP is paid for writing up the script. Yeah, and I know I've even had it, you know, with several people who've gotten in touch with me since I launched this campaign saying, well, you know, I've I've been on the phone to you or I've been in your pharmacy. You've diagnosed it there and then. Because I think what the, sometimes the, the bureaucrats at the top forget is that we do something like 78 million consultations in community pharmacy a year. So we're diagnosing already. We are diagnosing minor ailments 100 times a day. So it's just frustrating for us that sometimes, even though we know exactly what a safe treatment would be, that there is no protocol in place for us to be able to say, well, look, here you go. And obviously, X, Y, Z, if it gets worse, you'll have to see your GP. But if for minor cases, we would be able to treat them. And the other thing is, a lot of conditions, while, you know, some GPs will claim that they're self-limiting, they're patients suffering unnecessary hardship and, you know, ending up with maybe more severe pains and aches than than would normally happen if they had had early access to treatment. Mm. And those people are pushing further burden into the health system as well. The issue then, and it hasn't been raised, and this is why I'm concerned about this task force, like at the moment, medical card holders, 
are being told, like I've heard a GP on a national radio station yesterday saying, well, you can just go in and buy treatments for hay fever. And yeah, you can. But if you have severe hay fever, you may need an antihistamine tablet, a nasal spray and potentially eye drops. Like you could end up with a 15 to 20 euro bill. And for me, that's a little bit price discrimination because medical card holders have to be told, no, you have to go back to your GP, get those exact same items on your medical card prescription and then come in and we'll only charge you the government levy of, you know, 150 an item for it. Like, that's just not right and it's a waste of everyone's time. Mm, okay. Uh, take it, though, there's uh, a, a lot uh, to this proposal that would be of appeal to GPs because if people aren't coming to them looking for prescriptions, if there's no need in certain circumstances for people to go to the GP for a prescription, it means they'll have more time for patients. Uh, and everybody knows how difficult it is to get to see a, a GP. Uh, from the patient's point of view, uh, if you have to go back to your doctor for a prescription, you're going to have to pay again, aren't you? 50 or 60 euro, as the case may be. I think some GPs will do a repeat prescription for 30 euro or less, uh, as uh, the case may be. But what's it going to cost to go to the pharmacy? Uh, there will be a charge, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be a charge. And at the moment, like we are the only healthcare sector who actually haven't had our FEMPI. So that was the post during the recession. All of the fees were absolutely slammed to the floor and we're still being paid less than quarter, a quarter less than what we were being paid in 2009. So I know the Irish Pharmacy Union are fighting hard about that because at the moment pharmacists are expensive and, you know, in general, and just to, like I know for myself, I have staff, like I want to be able to then offer them a healthy living wage. I don't want to be offering them minimum wage where possible. And to be able to, you know, take on more pharmacy teams, we need to be able to be paid at a level at which our business is sustainable. Well, of course, I suppose any business owner does. Uh, Is there uh, an insurance risk here? Is there a worry about liability if something goes wrong? No, so we saw with the introduction of the flu vaccinations and COVID vaccinations, pharmacists already have professional indemnity insurance and this just falls under that. It's just another service. And in a lot of times, all we're talking about doing here is providing medical card patients access to treatments that private patients can currently buy. You know, so for me, a lot of it isn't about increased risk. It's just about better access. Obviously, there are some conditions like your conjunctivitis, which will be new, but that's the same exactly as the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccinations that the government has even, you know, hailed us as <laughs> miracle workers on that front because we did over 50% of all children's flu vaccines last winter. Very good. Sheena, it may be a slow step, but a step in the right direction as far as you're concerned, I think. And thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme today. Sheena Mitchell, pharmacy owner and the creator of Wondercare.ie and also the Wondercare podcast series. Now, uh, thanks to Tom uh, in touch with us about public transport. Not quite the same elsewhere as it is here or can be. Uh, Tom was in San Francisco, for example. He was there recently and he used public transport. Perfect, he said. A perfect system. But the one thing that stood out was our safety. 
three cops in the station. One even helped me with the ticket machine. Cops inside and outside every station. Cops walking. I haven't seen a Garda in two weeks in Drogheda. Safety is a big part of us not using public transport. Thank you, Tom. Interesting comment and a valid point, uh, I think, that a lot of people would relate to. Thanks uh, for making it uh, on your WhatsApp message. You can WhatsApp or text us on 086-1800-658, ring 041-983-2000, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usually the case on a Tuesday, for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Kate Patterson joins us from Dundalk Garda Station for this week's report, and thank you indeed uh, for doing so. We're going to start with a particularly serious incident uh, that happened on Sunday afternoon in Kilcurry. Absolutely. Good morning, Michael. Um, yes, we'll start off with the ramming of a marked Garda patrol car, uh, which took place on Sunday. Sunday just passed in the Kilcurry area of Dundalk. Garda from the Lowes Divisional Traffic Corps are seeking witnesses to this ramming. Um, as you say, it took place in the Kilcurry area of Dundalk on the afternoon of Sunday the 23rd. So at 2.50pm, when patrolling in the Balrigan area, members of the Garda Traffic Corps came across a black plate Ibiza which they believed was acting suspiciously in very close vicinity to a rural dwelling. Guardi attempted to stop the vehicle, which bore a Northern Irish registration plate, and on doing so, the driver of the vehicle fled the scene at high speed, colliding with the patrol car while doing so. Thankfully, none of the Guardi present were seriously injured, although the Garda patrol car was damaged and temporarily had to be taken out of service. At this point, we believe that the state Adita was involved in criminality in the rural area and may have been travelling in convoy the blue-coloured Lexus. We would like to speak to anyone who may have observed either of these vehicles in the Kilcurry area on Sunday afternoon. If you came across them or you captured them on your dash cam, then we would urge you please to contact Dundalk Garda Station. The number for Dundalk is 042 Okay, well, next to an appeal uh, for a young man who's missing from the Slane area, James Smith was out on Saturday night, was it? Yes, Michael. Um, Gardy and Navin are becoming increasingly concerned for the safety of James Smith Collins. James was last seen, as you say, in the early hours of Saturday morning. That was July 22nd. James, who is 21 years of age, failed to return home from a night out, this, night out at the village inn in Slane and was last captured on CCTV at 1.30am on Saturday morning at the hill of Slane. James is 5 foot 6 and weighs approximately 11 stone. He's a slight build and he has blonde brown hair. James has three very distinctive tattoos, one on each arm. And when he was last seen, he was wearing black tracksuit bottoms with a red stripe on the side, red coloured rain jacket with coloured stripes across the chest, white runners, and he would have been wearing black framed glasses. So if you've been in contact with James, or you believe you may have captured him on CCTV or dash cam footage in the early hours of Saturday morning, we would ask you please to contact Navin Garda Station or any local Garda station. And I'll just give you, um, I'll just give you the number for Navin. Yeah. 046-903-6100. 
Okay, James in uh, the village inn on Friday night, going into Saturday morning when he was last seen uh, on CCTV. Okay, um, we've a serious assault to report on next, uh, but this incident dates back some time, over nine months ago, to October of last year. That's right, Michael. So it would have taken place as so the week before the clocks changed um, way back in October. So we're reissuing an appeal for witnesses to this serious assault which took place at Mazzoni's Pizzeria in Park Street in Dundalk on, in the early hours of Sunday the 16th of October. At 2.20am, the victim, in this case, was punched from behind by a male and suffered serious injuries, including the loss of a number of teeth. Now, an unknown male stepped in to assist the victim and was able to point out the offender to him. To date, though, unfortunately, we haven't been able to locate this person and we would really like to speak to him so that he could assist us in our investigation. And we must stress that this man is not by any means a suspect and we would like to speak to him solely as a witness. So if you were this good Samaritan, this person, or you know who it may be, then please get in touch with the guardians on Dock or indeed the Garda Confidential Line. Um, and the confidential line, the number there is 1800 6 treble 1. Okay, uh, another incident uh, that goes back a, a little bit in time, no, nothing like uh, October, but uh, back to the 8th of July and some burglaries in Longwood. Yeah, several weeks ago, I suppose, Michael, yeah. Guardian Enfield and the detectives at Trim Garda Station are investigating the theft of three scramblers which were taken during the course of a burglary from a shed at the rear of 10 Pine Grove, Coilfada in Longwood, between the hours of 2am and 3am, so they would have been the early hours of Saturday, 8th of July. The suspects in this incident removed the scramblers from the shed and lifted them into the garden of an adjacent property before removing them via a side gate. So the Guardian have harvested CCTV in the vicinity and one camera does show four persons present on the property from which the scramblers were stolen. Further footage reveals a silver-coloured SUV, could be a Nissan Qashqai or a Kia Sportage, something along those lines, and we can see it leaving the vicinity with the scramblers being driven behind it. So we believe that the scramblers travelled in convoy with this silver-coloured vehicle and made their way towards Enfield on the N4 before they were once again seen, seen driving on the main street in Enfield. Now, when they left Enfield, we do believe that they travelled towards Maynooth and possibly on to the Ronanstown and Clondalkin areas of West Dublin. Unfortunately, despite extensive inquiries, we haven't been able to ascertain the correct registration plate attached to the vehicle involved. So the detective unit in Trimgarda Station are appealing to anyone who may have witnessed this convoy or indeed anyone who may have been offered scramblers for sale to contact them. You can touch with the detectives at Trim by telephoning 046 948 Okay, all these telephone numbers available from the radio station as well. It has to be said. Yes, Indeed, we've hit and run to report on next. Uh, this goes back to the seventh of July in Kells. It's a strange one, and I suppose the driver involved in this mightn't even be aware of what had happened. Um, the Gardaí are in Kells are seeking witnesses to this collision that took place on Friday, July the seventh. So again, several weeks ago, took place at approximately eight thirty a.m. in the morning. Um, on the OR158, which is the Kilcock to Summerhill Road, in the townland of Balfagan in Kells. 
So a black Skoda was travelling towards Summerhill and an articulated lorry was passing in the opposite direction going towards Kilcock. So we believe that this articulated lorry suffered some type of mechanical failure which resulted in a brake disc at the rear of the vehicle disintegrating and falling off. Unfortunately, the debris of the, of the brake disc when it was falling off caused significant damage to the front of the Skoda. Um, and as I said, it's possible that the driver of the lorry may not even have been aware at the time of what happened. So if you were in the vicinity, and that's, um, I suppose, the Kilcock to Summerhill Road, last uh, Friday the 7th of July at about 8.30am, and you witnessed this impact, or you maybe even captured it on your dash cam, or if you feel you can assist the investigation in any way, again, please contact Trim Garda Station. And the number for Trim again, 46 Indeed, if you were driving a lorry and discovered that at some stage your brake disc had fallen off, uh, you know who you are as well for that matter. Uh, uh, Word of warning to conclude, uh, I suppose, following an increase in uh, the number of uh, thefts of cars from people's homes. Absolutely, Michael. So theft of the actual vehicle and theft from the vehicle. We've had a number of reports of car key fishing in the Meath and the Lyds Garda divisions recently, which, as I say, result in vehicles being stolen and property being stolen from vehicles. Criminals, you know, they're always on the outlook for an opportunity. So we would urge you not to make it easy for them. And some of the ways you can do that um, are always keeping the car keys out of the view of your window, your door, your letterbox. Don't keep them close to your front door when you're storing them at home. Um, always ensure that your car is locked and alarmed, even when on your own private property, as most vehicles are stolen from private property. Uh, never ever keep valuables in your car and never leave property on display in your car. Please don't make the mistake of hiding your belongings within the car once you've parked your car up because you never know who is watching you. And then, I suppose the main thing, never leave your car unattended with the key in the ignition. These are just some simple simple steps that hopefully can prevent somebody from breaking into your vehicle or even taking the vehicle itself. Very good. Thank you. Garda Kate Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Task in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. We'll be back with our next programme tomorrow morning, God willing, at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.